Hi, everyone. We are back. Welcome to Febrile, a cultured podcast about all things infectious disease. We use consult questions to dive into ID clinical reasoning, diagnostics, and antimicrobial management. I'm Sarah Dong, your host and a MedPeds ID fellow. Here on Febrile, we use patient cases and chat with ID discussants to learn about high-yield ID topics. Welcome to the start of season two, which will run for the year of 2022. Before we start today's episode, I just wanted to make a very quick announcement. We are conducting a survey to better understand listener utilization and satisfaction with Febrile. We want to better understand how you use Febrile podcast to teach and to learn and what we can do to improve future episodes. The survey is open to anyone who has listened or viewed material from Febrile and is totally voluntary. The survey should only take about five to 10 minutes to complete and everything is completely anonymous. You can find the link to the survey on our Twitter page, and I will put a link in the description for this episode as well. Um, if you have any questions about the survey, you can send me, Sarah, an email at swdong at bidmc.harvard.edu. Okay, so let's jump into the episode. I would like to welcome Dr. Alejandra Mendoza, or Allie, to the podcast as a host today. She is an ID fellow at Mayo Clinic. And she is joined by Dr. John Wilson, who is a consultant and professor of medicine in the ID division at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Welcome to the show, guys. Hi. Hi, everyone. Hello. Um, before we start on the case, I do ask one question. As everyone's favorite cultured podcast, we would love to hear about a little piece of culture, like a book or a song or anything that brings you happiness. Okay, well, on that front, there's a, a great book that I enjoyed reading last year called Boys in the Boat. I, I'm trying to think of the author. It's, it's about a uh, University of Washington rowing team in the 1960s Olympics in Berlin um, during the time of the political Nazi Germany. And the point of the book isn't so much U.S. sports during the Olympics. It's about seven people from very different backgrounds, very underserved, under-resourced backgrounds coming together for a collective good just through incredible hardships and, 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 and family problems and difficulties um, and how they banded together under the highest of, of odds and, and persevered. And it really is, is kind of a fun, inspiring book that has nothing to do with infectious diseases, but is a wonderful diversion uh, from the daily activities in the hospital. And if anything, might keep you going through pretty difficult times. That's perfect. That sounds like a good theme for a book that I think a lot of people would appreciate yeah. right now. So today's consult question is about a patient with altered mental status of unclear cause. So I am going to throw it over to Allie. Okay, so they called us for altered mental status on a patient in the ER. Um, in short, he's a 34-year-old man, no past medical history, and he was brought by his sister into the ER because in the last 24 hours he was having, um, she felt that he was having some confusion, he was not really aware of the time, and he was also having worsening shortness of breath for the last week. She Most of the story was taken from the sister, and she mentioned that he has been feeling fatigued for the last months and also has had abdominal pain. And he did uh, have weight loss. She mentions he was about 20 pounds in the last three months. As far as she knows, no past medical history. She doesn't know if he takes any medications, no allergies. And they moved from Haiti when the patient was about nine years old. And he's currently a chef in a restaurant in the city. 
She knows that he has had three, uh, three female partners, and as far as she knows, no recent travel or pets. So when the patient is in the ER, he's uh, a little bit hypothermic in the 35 degrees Celsius. Blood pressure is stable in the 170s. However, he's tachycardic on the 115, 120s, and tachypnic. Initially, his uh, oxygen saturation is about 99%. And for the pertinent positives, he's oriented only to place in person. He is very cachectic and he's having active diaphoresis and he also is noted to have temporal wasting. No murmurs, just a persistent tachycardia. The lungs sound uh, with mild rails in the bases. They do have decreased breath sounds in the bases as well. And he's getting more tachypneic uh, by the minute and he started using accessory muscles of the breathing. Uh, on the abdomen exam, it's noted that he has epitomegaly. And on the neuro exam, he does have decreased strength in the lower extremities. So when addition evaluation in the ER, the CBC reveals pretty much pancytopenia. He has uh, thrombocytopenia in the 117, anemia, and leukopenia in 2.1. He does have uh, bandemia in 20%. His kidney function and electrolytes are within normal limits. However, uh, the liver function tests seem a little bit deranged. The AST is in 280, and ALKFOS is 420. They did initial imaging and the chest x-ray shows bilateral miliary pattern in the lungs. Well, when he came back from the imaging, he started being uh, more tachypneic and his oxygen saturation started to drop. So he, um, given the worsening saturation and the mental status, he needed intubation. At the end of intubation, they got new labs and in the next few hours, his kidney function worsened and the same for the liver function as the AST worsened to the 1200s and the phosphatase alkaline to almost 400. They did send him for a um, CT scan. The CT scan of the chest showed this, again, this biliary pattern on the lungs and confirmed the hepatomegaly. When he was transferred to the unit, another result came back. He was found to be HIV positive uh, in the HIV screening test. So we're going to stop a little bit here. And Dr. Wilson, can you walk us a little bit through your thought process regarding this patient? What's on your differential? Um, how will you approach this miliary pattern on imaging on this recently diagnosed patient with HIV? Yeah, this is a really interesting case. And with this type of a presentation, um, this individual's in trouble. And, and so there really has to be a, a time-sensitive set of decision-making regarding therapeutic intervention on this individual. Um, the differential really becomes dependent on a number of the risk factors, as Dr. Mendoza has nicely outlined. The patient demographics, for example, he's from Haiti. And this is an infectious diseases conference. And so a lot of things in that capacity we think about just because we're infectious diseases providers, but it shouldn't limit us to just thinking about ID issues. But nevertheless, um, thinking about where he is in Haiti, the risk factors that he's exposed to, tuberculosis, HIV, malaria, salmonella, and so forth. Uh, what specific type of risk factors he has, aside from demographics in that context, his immunocompetence. So we know he's HIV positive. And this type of presentation with this type of radiologic picture just in itself 
is very suggestive of somebody who's immunologically advanced in their HIV infection in that regard. And the chronicity of their illness. Is this something that cropped up in the last couple of days, an acute infectious process or acute inflammatory process? Or is this something that's been going on from weeks to months that may focus a bit more into the realm of mycobacteria or fungi or nocardia or things of that nature? In the setting of his HIV infections, again, as I mentioned, his clinical picture really suggests immunologically that he's advanced. And what I mean by that is the high likelihood that his CD4 cell counts are really going to be quite low, well under 50, most likely under, under 20 in that regard. And I mention that because we're getting into a scenario where his immune system really is not able to contain the infection. So when we talk about pulmonary pathogens like TB, for example, or fungal infections, histo and blasto and coccidiomycosis and such, the likelihood of his immune system containing that is really quite minimal. And so it's a much, much higher um, preponderance of having disseminated infection, um, not just throughout his lungs, but throughout his body um, in that regard. And so um, thus, we're more apt to see these patterns of miliary TB on his chest X-ray or CT imaging and in that setting, we shouldn't just be thinking about his lungs, even though radiologically that's what's most impressive, but really thinking about TB in other parts of his body, his L or, or infection rather, in other parts of his body. His, his LFTs are quite high, um, his mentation suppressed, he has positive neurologic findings, which are very concerning in that capacity. And so indeed, it's suggestive of an inflammatory process and that, that has a multi-organ involvement in that context. So with that type of backdrop, what's the differential that we're thinking? Now, tuberculosis just is, rises up to the top because of his, his immunologically advanced status in someone with HIV, um, but it's certainly not limited to TB. This gentleman's background in Haiti also makes TB a bit more of a focus given the high uh, preponderance of TB um, in the Caribbean island and that, in that whole Caribbean region in that context. We've had some TB projects actually in Haiti, and it's, it is quite common in that regard, as is HIV. But there are a number of other considerations in addition to TB. Yes, we should be thinking about TB in the setting of HIV, but it's important not to just think about TB. So, for example, and it may not demographically fit this individual as much for other patients that we might see in somewhat of a similar picture with a suppressed immune system with a similar radiologic picture, might also um, be, uh, for example, pulmonary and disseminated histoplasmosis. So, for example, a gentleman who might be in our neck of the woods here in southeastern Minnesota or the upper Midwest, Ohio, Mississippi River Valleys, um, you know, especially south central in, uh, Indiana, Kentucky, and so forth, which actually can have a very similar profile like tuberculosis with pulmonary, extrapulmonary, meningeal CNS involvement, hepatobiliary and such. Blastomyces, disseminated blastomycosis, especially, again, in the upper Midwest, but uh, the southeastern and central U.S., we see this as well. Coccidioides infection, um, the, 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 uh, the desert rheumatism, if you will, of southwestern U.S., northern Mexico, Central America, paracoxy infections in regions of South America. We've even seen presentations of cryptococcus look somewhat similar to this as well, too. So important to keep that open mind of what else could this possibly be. Now, a gentleman in Haiti, the likelihood of histoblasto or coxie are, is really going to be quite low in that capacity, so that likelihood really becomes minimal. There are certain viral or post-viral, I mean, this doesn't sound like a viral syndrome, but for example, primary varicella pneumonitis sometimes can give some nodular-based infiltrates and give a little bit of a somewhat miliary pattern. Um, disseminated salmonella infections sometimes can present like this um, with this type of miliary pattern and also hepatosplenomegaly, low cell counts as well, and um, should not be outside of the differential. And certainly coming from Haiti, that would be a consideration. 
Uh, Nocardia has been described like this, but honestly, it, 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 this is kind of an unusual presentation for Nocardia, but another, another consideration. And then finally, we get into radiologic pictures of pneumocystis that somewhat can look like on chest X-ray miliary, although the CT patterns of infiltrate are quite different. Um, and sometimes we might have some hepatic involvement, but when we talk about the elevated liver enzymes or the mentation changes, that becomes a bit more unusual uh, for pneumocystis. Now, as ID providers, it's easy to think about just the infectious causes, but it's also to think about what type of non-infectious causes could there be with this type of miliary picture on, on chest X-ray or CAT scan. Sometimes a hypersensitivity pneumonitis, uh, more of a hyperimmunologic or allergic response to various um, um, allergens can do this, uh, many of which can be to non-TB mycobacteria, especially the rapid-growing mycobacteria, select fungi, um, dematiaceous uh, molds, aspergillus, and certain environmental exposures. But again, this type of presentation with the mentation neurologic findings, elevated liver enzymes, pancytopenia doesn't seem to fit that. Non-infectious uh, considerations are also possible. They're not as common, but for example, uh, select uh, metastatic disseminated malignancies, uh, thyroid cancer, keeping in mind I'm a terrible oncologist, but thyroid cancers, uh, certain types of renal cell carcinomas, uh, breast cancer, pancreatic cancer. Again, these are not typical, but certain types of non-infections that can be looked at in this capacity, as well as pneumoconiosis um, with rest, certain respiratory exposures. But again, putting this individual together, immunologically advanced HIV, pancytopenia, elevated liver enzymes, cognitive suppression, neurologic findings really suggest a disseminated multi-organ inflammatory syndrome most likely with hepatobiliary and marrow involvement. And with this individual's demographic um, 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 background of being from Haiti and such, it really has a very strong suggestion of tuberculosis. Don't forget about salmonella, things of that nature. And so that, that would be the initial differential considerations that I'd have in my mind going into this case. Um, but TB would really be high on the list. Wow. Thank you so much. That was great. A great differential to have in our pocket in the future. So when the patient is in the ICU, uh, some of the labs that they were sent returned back. His CD4 um, cell number is 21 with a viral load of 23,000. They also sent other workup for respiratory infections, including Legionella, Strep Pneumo. Uh, they send the respiratory viral panel, and all of them are negative. They do send syphilis RPR, which is positive, and also he has um, EBV positive in the 1200s. So in the given situation that he has these ultramental styles in the setting of HIV, they do an LP on admission. And the results of the LP, when they do it, the fluid that they see is very cloudy. And with a glucose on 91, protein of 22, which is about normal, he, it was a traumatic tap, so the red blood cells are in 9600 with a leukocyte count of 343 that's mainly driven by lymphocytes. Dr. Wilson, what do you think about the results of the LP in the setting of this patient? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting finding. I mean, generally, when we talk about, um, well, let me back up. What, you know, depending upon the differential, when we talk about TB meningitis, you know, oftentimes, you know, we think about more of a moderate lymphocytic pleocytosis and low glucose and elevated protein is kind of classic. 
Keeping in mind, however, that early on neutrophils may actually uh, um, you know, be predominant, somewhat analogous to a bacterial meningitis coming off the street. From a TB standpoint, it's also important to keep in mind, generally, this is a posse bacillary type of syndrome, meaning that unlike cavitary pulmonary TB, where sputum samples oftentimes are A of B stain positive, the spinal fluid, um, the, the A of B stain generally is negative. I mean, it can be that, you know, up to about uh, three quarters of cases, 75% of cases given the posse bacillary nature. And so PCR testing should definitely be added in that capacity. And sometimes if the diagnosis is not clear, um, repeat CSF testing may be needed. Oftentimes, I'll throw in what's called an adenosine deaminase test, which also can be notably elevated, whether it's spinal fluid or pleural fluid, which can be helpful in the setting of extrapulmonary uh, tuberculosis. And then finally, um, the CSF is usually abnormal. Um, the, the diagnosis can be made on clinical grounds alone when there's no other alternative clear finding from a microbiologic standpoint to, to really set our, our therapeutics at it. Again, this is an individual that's going to need treatment um, sooner than later uh, in that regard. Now, Ali, you also mentioned that he has a positive serum RPR, and, and that's good to know because when we talk about someone with immunologically advanced HIV, maybe he's got tuberculosis, maybe he has other things, but it doesn't have to be just one thing. He actually could have multiple things going on. So that RPR is important. Is it real? What's the titer of that RPR? Do we have a treponemal antibody confirmation? And getting spinal fluid evaluation, yes, we're, look, we're, we're looking for all sorts of things, including TB and bacteria, but we also be, we should be looking for neurosyphilis as well. This is a pretty extreme case to tie all this together with neurosyphilis, but that doesn't exclude neurosyphilis being present with something else or with multiple other things um, going on from that standpoint. So it, it, it's, his spinal fluid is abnormal. I will say that you know, having an inflammatory response could be a saving grace for this individual, that he's got somewhat of an, enough of an immune system to generate an inflammatory response. I start getting more worried when there's minimal cells being present, when now this, the, the, pro, the glucose is, is not terribly low, the protein's mildly elevated, but the more normalized the spinal fluid is in the setting of infection with immunologically advanced HIV becomes a negative prognostic factor, which is sort of the paradox. And you kind of want this gentleman to have enough immunologic reserve to generate uh, an inflamed spinal fluid in that setting. So I'm a little worried about this guy. He Clinically, he's coming in in a very conserved, compromised fashion, and his spinal fluid isn't really making me feel much better. Yeah, thank you. That was very helpful. So the syphilis RPR came back on 1 over 64 with positive FTA-IBS. Uh, later, the gene, the gene expert MTV-PCR in the LP came back positive. And he also underwent a BAL. The results from the BAL, he had a positive MTV-PCR. They also found Epstein-Barr virus PCR in 12,000, positive PCR CMB uh, less than 79, according to their lab, negative uh, PJP or pneumocystis PCR. And they also tested for HSV1, HSV2, HHV6, HHV7, and 8. They are all negative. COVID is negative. And again, the respiratory viruses are negative as well. So Dr. Wilson, will you help us walking through this diagnosis? 
Yeah, and, and and so there's a lot of a number of things to kind of unpack here with this individual. Um, let me just start with miliary TB and CNS TB. Now that this guy's got a positive gene expert on a spinal fluid and his bronchial lavage, um, I mean it's a miliary disseminated TB with CNS involvement and a high likelihood he has a patibiliary involvement as well. Um, this gentleman fortunately was test positive. Sometimes these individuals can be more challenging because unlike cavitary pulmonary TB again, where there's a high burden of bacillary present, with miliary TB, it's scattered throughout the lungs, throughout the body in that regard. It oftentimes doesn't have that concentrated presence of, of, of bacillary. And so AFB smears can be negative. And my point on this is oftentimes you have to go, this gentleman had a, had a BAL, but with sputum samples, they can be smear negative. Now, gene expert or other PCR platforms oftentimes will be positive, which is I highly encourage that because this gentleman needs a rapid diagnosis. And with a gene expert, you can also not only diagnose TB by the by the PCR positivity, but it'll test for RPOB gene mutations. That is a gene correlating with rifampin activity. And there's a number of mutations within the RPOB gene that correlate with rifampin rifibutin uh, resistance, and it's good to have that right up front. So there's a diagnostic standpoint of TB, but also letting us know out of the gate whether there is, there's rifamycin resistance as well. So in this gentleman, there's the respiratory samples that you oftentimes will need multiple sputum, if not bronchial lavage. This gentleman had a bronchial lavage, which is good. I generally would include a blood culture for mycobacteria, although this gentleman having it in the respiratory sample, in the spinal fluid, I think there's an overwhelming high likelihood it's going to be in the blood. It's not going to change our management, but I usually include that. Sometimes when the diagnosis is tricky, I'll also collect urine um, for AFB smear, uh, TB, PCR off the urine and mycobacterial cultures for genital urinary TB, but it's a surrogate marker for disseminated disease. And if I'm really struggling, um, I've even checked stool samples for TB as well, especially with, with uh, gastrointestinal uh, degrees. Now, I'll also look for cryptococcus. Again, TB and HIV don't have to live alone. It can live with other things like syphilis, like cryptococcus, um, other fungi, and so forth. Um, and so with that, I'd also look at a spinal fluid now for VDRL and, 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 and how we're going to approach this with, 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 um, uh, with syphilis. And I think this gentleman's going to need to be treated for neurosyphilis in addition to tuberculosis. So already this is becoming more and more um, you know, complex in that, in that capacity. And even though this is now starting to shape up pretty nicely as you know, disseminated TB, syphilis infection with someone with immunologically advanced HIV, I probably would do a malaria smear as well, just to be sure I'm not dealing with falciparum malaria with the hepatobiliary component. Um, I've actually had a few cases of that during my time down in Haiti um, or Vivax malaria in that, in that capacity, and because that also has a direct impact in, in how this gentleman is, is, is going to be managed. So, you know, with that, um, I would also say that his liver enzymes are elevated. And, and yes, this may be hepatobiliary TB. As I mentioned, there could be a malaria component, could be a salmonella component, routine blood cultures, but I would definitely check viral serologies to hepatitis B virus, hepatitis C virus, um, hepatitis A virus, in that regard, um, depending upon his activities, sexual activity, IV use, and so forth, I might even include um, uh, PCR testing up front, inquiring about his alcohol history, and so forth. So all that kind of goes in together to really help further define the syndrome, immunologically advanced HIV, disseminated TB with a respiratory and spinal fluid involvement, Good chance there's marrow involvement. Good chance there's uh, um, um, hepatobiliary involvement. 
syphilitic infection um, you know, with a positive RPR, elevated titer. Now, the abnormal spinal fluid may all be as TB, but we're still stuck with that, which is difficult to exclude. And so it's really trying to assess, are there other things going on as, you, as, as you're composing the overall management um, algorithm moving forward? Yeah, thank you. That's very helpful. The team, it's ordering all these tests now, and they are calling the ID fellow because they want to see about the treatment for this miliary TV. Oh, the poor ID oh. fellow. I can imagine this being <laughs> 7 o'clock on a Friday night. <laughs> so their question is, do we start treatment for the miliary TV? What about the liver function test? Yeah, so let's just say this gentleman had normal liver function tests. This in itself would be a very complicated case. Immunologically advanced HIV, disseminated TB with miliary involvement, pancytopenia. This is really, really challenging. Now you have LFTs that are elevated as well, too. And my heart sunk when, when you just mentioned that in regarding how complex can this actually be. So um, a couple of basic principles. Let me just take a moment just to reflect on the treatment of CNS tuberculosis, and then we can kind of get into the 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 approach with the abnormal liver function tests. Um, I'm going to diverge a little bit from the 2016 published guidelines of extrapulmonary TB. And if you read that document, CNS meningeal TB that go into a standard INH for fampin, PZA, and ethambutol and outline a, a longer duration of therapy and so forth. Here's the problem. Um, you really need these drugs getting into the spinal fluid and rifampin being the most important drug out of the four, um, you, the, the 600 milligram dose is actually a low dose. In fact, we may, we may be seeing national recommendations, both CDC and WHO, within the next year or two, outlining a standard elevation of rifampin dosing. The 600 milligram dose was decided 30 plus years ago during the original uh, TBTC clinical trial studying rifampin, but it was an expensive drug. Um, re regarding what was the lower dose of tolerability. We know that individuals can tolerate much, much higher doses of rifampin, do quite well, and have very favorable outcomes in that regard. And when we're talking about CNS penetration, you know, we're talking really, of, you know, anywhere between, um, you know, 10 and 40% of the drug getting into the spinal fluid in that capacity. And this is your workhorse drug. So unlike standard CDC published recommendations, um, many of us in the TB community and our TB centers that are funded by CDC will actually use higher doses of rifampin right out of the gate. And so, for example, rather than the 600 milligram dose, I honestly would not go any lower than 900 milligrams, which is 15 milligrams per kilogram. And I would think about somewhere between 15 and 35 milligrams per kilogram dosing in that regard. I would actually go quite high um, with the plan of, 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 of having serum drug levels of rifampin the, the standard range is 8 to 24, I would really push the levels to be close to 24. This is a syndrome that I would follow serum drug level monitoring of his TB drugs very, very carefully, not only to ensure appropriate dosing of rifampin as it reflects into the CNS, but also to ensure that these individuals with immunologically advanced HIV commonly have enteric malabsorptive conditions, and some of that is reflective of the TB itself. The GI tract with the Peyer's patches has lots of lymphoid tissue. They get loaded with TB bacilli, and secondary drug malabsorption is not an uncommon thing. So the irony is we see drug levels sometimes tend to rise in our um, um, HIV-TB co-infected individuals who are advanced um, well into therapy in that capacity. So I would look at a much higher dose of rifampin out of the gate, preferentially 12 to 18 to even 2,400 milligrams daily, 
isoniazid, pyrazidamide. Ethambutol does not penetrate the blood-brain barrier all that well. It's a, it's a decent drug that was designed to minimize propagation of INH and rifampin resistance. Rather than including ethambutol, I actually would include a, flor, a fluoroquinolone. Moxifloxacin would be my preference, but in an individual with hepatic insufficiency, you could argue for levofloxacin. Um, they have much better CNS penetration compared to ethambutol in that regard. There have been clinical trials outlining how much bang for the buck does moxifloxacin or a quinolone add in CNS tuberculosis. It actually has not been shown to be that much more beneficial, but we do see fluoroquinolones having an additive activity with isoniazid. In fact, there was a recently published article uh, two months ago about a new four-drug regimen with rifapentine and moxifloxacin for standard pulmonary tuberculosis where a quinolone actually added more activity, enabling shortening therapy to four months uh, compared to not using it. So more and more centers or TB providers actually um, rely on the utility of a fluoroquinolone in this regard to get into the spinal fluid, to assist rifampin, to assist isoniazid. PZA also gets in all that well, although its activity is somewhat questionable in that setting. So my bias, honestly, would be to include a fluoroquinolone in that capacity. And I like moxifloxacin, but with this, with this gentleman's LFTs very high, you can make an argument for levofloxacin. Moxie is very rare to cause hepatic toxicity, but I, this it's just going to raise questions if you have them on more liver metabolizing drugs. So levofloxacin could be a consideration um, in that capacity. And as I mentioned, it's important to check uh, serum drug levels. And again, rifampin, about 10% of that drug, 20, 30% gets into the spinal fluid. So if you have a level of, you know, a serum drug level of rifampin close to 24, 20 to 24, that means you're, you're going to have a, a spinal fluid concentration you know, roughly, you know, 10% of that. So 2.0, 2.4 mics per ml in that regard. And when we look at a rifampin susceptible isolate MIC of 0.2, you're doing pretty well. You're having tenfold over the MIC and that makes us feel much better about the role of rifampin in that regard. I probably would not push the dose more than a serum drug level of 24 for rifampin. That's why I think serum drug levels um, are, are so very important. Many providers will start with IV therapy, IV rifampin up front for the first month, if not two months, to essentially not worry about GI tract absorption. Again, because of that variability in uh, immunologically advanced patients with HIV and their ability to absorb drugs when, when TB co-infection is, is, is a problem in that capacity. So in, in that regard, you can make an argument up front, given how sick this individual is, to start with combination IV therapy. And then as hopefully clinically things are improving, you're getting more faith in the enteric ability to absorb medications. You can then look towards converting this over, over um, to an oral, formu oral formulation. Moxifloxacin, I would look at using, you could use anywhere between 400 and 800 milligrams daily. Keep in mind that there will be a little bit of a rifamycin-associated induced drug metabolism of moxifloxacin. Thus, some providers will go 800 milligrams out of the gate. I mean, LFT issues aside, um, or levofloxacin 750 to 1 gram daily, and again, follow those liver function tests. Now, with tuberculosis, meningitis, or CNSTB, putting individuals on therapy, and this has been well described, especially in individuals with other immunologic compromising conditions, HIV or, or other um, conditions, can have um, a fairly significant iris process with TB meningitis, CNS-TB. And so steroids in this regard actually have been shown to minimize grade four adverse events. And mortality hasn't been all that different, but in the context of seizure activity, of permanent neurologic sequelae, 
um, having patients on dexamethasone out of the gate um, can very much be beneficial in that regard over the next six to eight weeks. And I will say that current um, publications of CNSTB nicely outline dosages and outline durations of therapy to six to eight weeks. I can be honest with you and say that this is where medicine becomes a bit less of a science and more of an art. It is not unusual that you may find yourself dose escalating steroids in patients with CNSTB because of mentation changes, for example, um, uh, neurologic sequelae, neuro, um, um, uh, weakness, and so forth that develop. And very commonly, the duration goes well over eight weeks in that capacity. It sometimes can even be months. And so important to think about if they're not already on pneumocystis prophylaxis for other reasons, um, indeed, in this context, uh, they may need to be on it because of the prolonged dexamethasone or prednisone um, usage in that setting. So do keep in mind of other opportunistic infectious prophylaxis um, considerations. Now, the setting of hepatic insufficiency makes this that much more problematic and that much more challenging of, of a case in that regard because of the drugs I just mentioned, isoniazid, rifampin, PZA are all liver metabolized. Ethambutol isn't, but you're not going to use ethambutol. You're going to substitute it with a fluoroquinolone. But you have three big drugs that are liver metabolized, all of which have been shown to invoke hepatic toxicity at times. Rifampin is probably the least offending agent when it comes to, to, to hepatic toxicity, and it really is the most important drug for drug-susceptible TB. So I really would want this guy as best as possible on a rifamycin-containing regimen in that setting. His LFTs are up to begin with, so it's not, it's, not because, it's not because you're talking about putting him on rifampin or rifabutin that his LFTs are up. It's because of something else, probably hepatobiliary TB. If you're if serologies for hep A, B, and C are negative. Sometimes these individuals would get a liver biopsy too, just to be even more sure. But again, thinking that it may be TB in his liver that's driving this, I personally would very much try to have this gentleman on a rifamycin-containing program. I would also add a fluoroquinolone, moxifloxacin, or levofloxacin, again, which is, which is uh, liver cleared in that setting um, to minimize LFT problems. I probably would think about putting amicacin on board for the immediate future, um, keeping in mind that hepatorenal syndrome is a real issue and you have to watch his kidney function um, carefully in that regard. Um, even though ethambutol does not get across the blood-brain barrier, it's for the rest of his body, the rest of his TB in his system that you could have, you could have ethambutol on board. So it won't really do a lot for the, the CNS TB, but for everything south of his head, the ethambutol can... Um, can have a bit more bang for the buck in that capacity. Now, I probably would keep PZA away. I probably would hold isoniazid until I was more comfortable that he was tolerating that particular regimen. And then I would think about introducing isoniazid and then maybe dropping one of his other agents. Um, some centers, when you start running out of drugs, I mean, other considerations like cycloserine, renally cleared, gets into the spinal fluid well. I, I don't think I would go that route unless I was really running out of drugs or he was not tolerating his, his rifampin or, or, or other medications. Um, I don't like ethionamide. Linazolid, it's liver metabolized anyway. Linazolid gets into the spinal fluid well, but it's liver metabolized. So again, these are the kind of things that you just have to weigh the, the, um, the pros and cons um, so in someone without liver problems, isoniazid, high-dose rifampin, big high-dose rifampin, and isoniazid with B6 because of its HIV co-infection and all the other issues going along with them, pyrazidamide, and rather than ethambutol, I would do a fluoroquinolone, preferentially moxifloxacin, although levofloxacin could be used. In this gentleman with the hepatic insufficiency, 
rifampin up front, and I'd be very careful with the dosing on this, uh, a fluoroquinolone, amicacin, probably a thambutol, and then whether or not to add a fifth drug, I think I would just have to sort through, um, can he tolerate INH, or do we look, at, do we look on, on second-line agents in that capacity um, moving forward? So this, this is going to be a little bit of a moving target with this individual, but I would also want to be as sure as possible that I knew what was going on with the liver. What's driving his liver enzymes? So in the ways described, I really am thinking this is disseminated TB with a significant hepatobiliary uh, component, but wanted to be sure on hep A, B, and C. And sometimes a liver biopsy may be warranted if his platelet count's high enough and, and, um, and, and he could tolerate it okay. Wow, that was very tough. Thank you so much. The team is going to start the therapy for the disseminated tuberculosis. However, they are concerned about something else and they call the fellow again. Should they start the antiretrovirus for the HIV? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you really cannot have a conversation about uh, um, uh, CNS or disseminated TB in an individual with advanced HIV without talking about antiretroviral therapy. So um, clearly the most important issue with this gentleman, what's, what's, what's going to do him in first is the tuberculosis. He's got to get on a TB regimen. We got to be sure he's stable on a TB regimen. So that in itself should be the priority. I worry about throwing too many drugs at him at one point in time where if he gets toxicity, and he might, um, we, we're not quite sure what, which program it is. So usually in individuals with HIV tuberculosis co-infection, um, there's some nice guidelines pu uh, published um, that have come out of three landmark trials, the SAPID, the Camellia study, and the STRIDE uh, trial which all of you probably know quite well, and I won't go into the details on that, but basically it outlines for individuals with more immunologically advanced HIV, i.e. CD4 counts 50 or less, you want to start um, um, antiviral therapy roughly within two weeks of starting their tuberculosis therapy. So get their combination TB therapy up and running, and within the next two weeks, whether it's one week or two weeks, try to get their HIV therapy started uh, in that capacity and a regimen that plays well with the rifamycin class of drugs. In individuals who are a bit more immunologically constituted, CD4 is over 50, you have a little bit more play at hand and you, you have the opportunity of, of delaying the start of, of, of combination antiviral therapy, you know, out for one to two months. But having said that, the point is the sooner you could start ART antiviral therapy, the better. And, and I would really not want to, want to delay that uh, 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 too long. Now, with TB meningitis, it's a little bit different because starting ART does invoke some degree of eventual immunologic reconstitution. That's what we want to see with effective antiretroviral therapy. What will happen in that is you get an, a much more robust inflammatory response wherever the TB bacteria are. And in the brain, that means secondary worsening meningeal and CNS inflammation in that capacity. Um, part of the rationale for having dexamethasone on board. But there can be severe um, reactions from that. Again, seizures, um, uh, neuropathies, weakness, nerve impingement syndromes, and so forth. Um, so in that regard, there's, there have been a number of trials looked at, and there's a nice trial from Vietnam, goodness, 10 plus years ago, outlining these grade four toxicities and thus articulating the role of delaying um, antiretroviral therapy out to eight weeks um, after starting tuberculosis treatment. Now, having said that, 
Um, this is a guideline. It's a, it's, it's, it's a guideline, not, a, not a, an absolute must wait eight weeks. Patients do better the sooner you start their antiretroviral therapy. And what's been updated since that publication is for individuals who can tolerate it, starting sooner than eight weeks is generally prepared. And so I, I generally like to get them on their antiviral therapy Within two weeks, within three weeks, waiting eight weeks honestly gets me awfully nervous. So step number one is to getting them on TB, combination TB drug therapy. And this individual with LFTs that are quite high, I really need to ensure he's tolerating his TB drugs. His liver function tests are settling down well before I'm ready to start antiviral therapy because we'll get into similar problems with his antiviral therapy regarding liver metabolism, abnormal drug levels, drug-drug interactions, toxicities, and so forth. Um, but I do, I would not wait the full eight weeks. I would really within four weeks, definitely ideally, if you can, perhaps at two weeks time, but trying to get that antiviral therapy, I would not do it all the same night. So he's not going to die of AIDS that night. He's going to, TB is what's going to take him before anything. And that's the focus of trying to get him through, but I just would not wait too long Again, I'm looking at maybe within two weeks trying to get them on antiviral therapy. But again, uh, current publications will, you know, do raise concern on starting antiviral therapy too early. And so waiting four weeks or even eight weeks, which many providers do. So I want to throw this out there that it really comes down to a judgment call. And I would base this honestly how this gentleman is tolerating his TB therapy, his liver function test uh, stability, and then look towards the timing of ART at that point in time. Great. So this was a great review of the treatment. Yeah, we did not make it easy, right? <laughs> yeah, this is a really, you know, and, and it also goes into when we talk about ART, and I, I, I don't want to go too far down this route, you know, the type of ART to start this gentleman on. And so drug-drug interactions are critical to look at when you're treating an individual um, who's on combination tuberculosis drug therapy. The primary you know, issue are the rifamycins, rifampin and less so with rifabutin. And as you know, um, these drugs, uh, rifampin predominantly and to a lesser degree rifabutin, will chew up the protease inhibitors, um, have a significant interaction with most NNRTIs, although not so much with the fabrins in that regard. And so the integrase strand inhibitors really have the least uh, amount of interaction. And so what we tend to favor um, is either uh, raltegravir, a dose-escalated raltegravir, if it's going to be rifampin on board, um, or doubling the dose of dalrotegravir for twice daily and keeping a, a tenofovir-based program uh, or, or preferentially TDF. There's more data with TDF than tenofovir-alafenamide and emtricitabine. Now, tenofovir-alafenamide may actually be fine. There's some supplemental data that demonstrates that it does. the rifamycins don't chew up the um, um, the, the pathway as much um, as originally expected, but we generally focus on starting with tenofovir disoproxyl, emtricitabine, and, an, and a dose-escalated integrase strand inhibitor if we're using rifampin. I would say that you want to make every effort possible to include a rifamycin into this gentleman's tuberculosis program. That really is the most important drug, um, and, and really the ART should be composed around the rifamycin selected. And and even though this is a liver metabolized drug, the rifampin, the, the hepatotoxicity, it happens, but it's not as common as with PCA or isoniazid. The higher doses of, of rifampin ironically tend not to lead to higher rates of hepatotoxicity. So I wouldn't be gun shy about using the higher doses. Uh, but this individual does need to be monitored quite, quite carefully. Uh, he, he's in a pretty guarded position. I'm, I'm worried about this kind of presentation and how he'll do on therapy. But also keep in mind that people... Starting ART with their immune system coming back 
can interestingly immunologically do worse before they get better. And a lot of that reflects the iris, and thus the rationale in this individual with a CNSTB of having dexamethasone on board, having generous doses of dexamethasone on board, and watching him very, very carefully, longitudinally moving forward. And uh, we'll, we'll see how he does. Do, do we have follow-up on how things are, are going with him? Yeah, uh, so the patient actually spent in the hospital about two or three months. He was started on the HIV therapy about two weeks after the starting the anti-tuberculosis therapy. He survived. He is doing well. Actually, he's following up in the HIV clinic. And he's he did have some deficits in the lower extremities. But other than that, he was able to return back to his work. So he did well. That's quite a turnaround, and, and, and especially how he presented. Now, out of curiosity, how did his liver function test do? I, I'm assuming, did they get better fairly promptly, or did it take a little while before they responded? The rest of the workup regarding hepatitis B, C uh, were negative, and it looks that it may have been a component of shock liver uh, because after a few days in the ICU, the liver function test is starting to pick up. So around the third week, they were able to start uh, antituberculous medication, even though initially they used the amikacin and the drugs that you recommended. Yeah, and what's interesting with um, tenofovir-based formulations, ART, that will, as you know, for people with chronic active hepatitis B viral infection that has the hepatitis B um, activity along with emtricitabine, uh, um, which is which you know would would be beneficial for this individual had hepatitis B been a component of his liver profile. Thankfully, it wasn't, but if so, the ART that you'd have him on would be covering that base as well too. Thanks again to Allie and John for joining us today. I know I've had many, many requests to get our first TB case on febrile. Um, and I really loved how this tied into the miliary differential we've talked about in the histo episode before, as well as thinking about when to start ART and CNS infections, which we very briefly touched on in the crypto episode. So I'll put an additional plug for the febrile survey I mentioned at the beginning one last time. And the usual disclaimer that all presented patients on this podcast are inspired by patient experiences, but cases are constructed or significantly altered and de-identified for learning purposes. Don't forget to check out the website, febrilepodcast.com, to find the consult notes, which are written compliments of the show with links to references, as well as our library of ID infographics. Please reach out if you have suggestions for future shows or want to be more involved with Febrile. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and I'll see you next time.